This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Answered lots of good questions today on today's Q&A podcast. First, how to use the Ben Franklin effect to control the people around you. Also, how to avoid the Facebook, Twitter, social media, and even family and friend fights with people who are on the opposite side politically. I give the four rules of engagement in social media fights. And then should this one person become a lawyer or a romance novelist? And I also describe a new multi-billion, it might even be a trillion dollar industry called e-commerce. Everyone's heard of e-commerce, but now the next big thing is e-commerce. I also talk among other things about subscription sex kits. That and more on today's Q&A. Also, please, please, please send me feedback or ask me questions. You could text me with either at 203-590-8607. Ask me any question you want, 203-590-8607. Enjoy. Welcome, IG Live. How are you doing, Robin? Good. Did you watch uh, right now? I think Fauci was testifying at Congress. I, a little bit. I was on the phone, though. Anything? Do you know of anything? Did he say anything interesting? Not. I'm sure he did, but I wasn't paying attention. You know what I would like to know? I would like to see a timeline of every decision the WHO or CDC has made about masks. <laughs> right. Because... Daily, right? Yeah, and by the way, I'm not criticizing them. Like, at first, let's just assume the CDC and the WHO are one big organization. So at first they said, don't use masks. And I get it. It's because they thought they were going to run out of masks for the doctors and healthcare workers. So, like anybody who's manipulative, they thought they had to lie to get what they want. They couldn't just say, don't use masks because we need doctors to use it. Because maybe they were afraid then people would start, start, you know, hoarding masks. You know, like, remember at the beginning of the whole pandemic, people were literally, like, down the street, Upper West Side of New York, two women were fighting on the floor at Trader Joe's for a roll of toilet paper. Right. Like, people were that scared they were going to run out of toilet paper. Like, that. that's how quickly, like, it took, it took just a week for people to turn into, like, what they think is respectable adults, mm-hmm. and it could never happen here, sort of thinking, right. to... They turn into basically animals on the right. floor Survival. in public right. fighting over 12 years. That would never be me. And yet people should realize I'm not making fun of those women. That's any of us. Like we, right. we, something, some survival instinct, you know, kicks in and we turn into what humans were just 50,000 years ago. You know, most, oh, can't see me. There we are. Most humans. Most humans, I think something like 30% of humans that they find the bones from 50, 60,000 years ago, most humans die from like some violent, Yeah. they could see, oh, there was like an arrow stuck in this person or, or there was some broken bones or so, most people die from some violent, uh, violent behavior. So we, and the, the body, the mind has not evolved at all in the past 50,000 years. We're the same, we've got the same brains we had 50,000 years ago, but society now has Whole Foods, has <laughs> Trader Joe's, right. has bookstores. So you like, in order to eat sugar 50,000 years ago, it was difficult. Nothing, nothing was, you, you know, it was rare to have some sweet food. Even the food that we eat now that's sweet is genetically modified. Watermelons, even when I was a kid, watermelons had seeds in them. Now they don't. And 50,000 years ago, watermelons only had very small amounts of the fruit in them. You had to kind of really dig hard in the watermelon to find the fruit. Mm-hmm. So now, again, the brain hasn't evolved. So when we see sweets, we just can't stop eating because the brain says, oh my gosh, this is the last time you're going to see sweets maybe in your entire life. You better eat all of the chocolate that you can right away. And so the brain just doesn't stop. And that's the reason, like, we get 
addicted to these things. Like, because we're, our body, our mind thinks this feels so good. I'm not going to get this again. So we become addicts for sweets or drugs or food or whatever. So, yeah. uh, it's so easy to kind of go back into that primitive spot and you see mm -hmm. it on Twitter now, like everyone is, you know, the, you know, everyone's basically a maniac. Like there, people basically want financial security or, you know, meaning they don't have, they don't have to worry about whether they're going to be poor again, or they want intellectual security. They want people to think that they're smart and that their opinion should be respected, or they want emotional security. They want to be with, you know, a spouse that they can trust and who's going to help them to feel good about themselves and so on. So they want those three things. And if they don't get them, like if you don't get intellectual security from your close group, you end up being an anonymous person on Twitter right. screaming at, you know, the president or Joe Biden or other people who you could just attack and attack and attack and you get all your intellectual security needs from that. And if you don't have financial security, then you could basically say, well, Jeff Bezos needs to share all his money. It's not fair that the guy who created Amazon that I order all of my belongings from and get delivered right to my door. The guy who created that all for me needs to share all of his money. And maybe he should. I'm not arguing politically, but that's if you if you're if you're really financially insecure, you start taking it out against people who are better off. And if you're emotionally insecure, uh, you know, you get more desperate for relationships. You outsource your self-esteem to your you, you know, like if I were to if we were to just start dating, I would be you would be my mirror and I would uh, look to you to, to determine how I should feel about myself. And if you started to feel less about me, then I would get nervous and I would get jealous and I would get insecure and that would drive you further away. So I would get more insecure. Yeah. And so all, all of those things have a positive and all of those things have a negative, like, right. you know, better to be secure, but if you're insecure, that tends to right. be what happens. So it's really all about belonging and survival. Yes. So like the financial security and emotional security and even the intellectual security is about survival. You get, ex you, right. you know, you get accepted into the tribe yes. and you get closer and closer to being the alpha of right. the tribe. And if you're insecure, you, you get the cortisol spiking like, oh, my gosh, mm -hmm. the tribe's going to reject me. Right. I need to lash out. I need to be the leaders of right. the people who want billionaire money or I need to like trash all the intellectually superior people on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok, or I need to, you know, beg my spouse, like you promised you would love me. Yeah. And, you know, if you don't, I'm going to cry all the time. <laughs> Look, I've, I've been there in almost every relationship of my life. So it's amazing. I haven't been there with you where I at the point of suicide when oh, a girl dude. does turns away from me. Oh. So, Going to, oh, uh, I want to talk about some business models. What do you think? All right. Sounds good. Anybody have a business idea they want to pitch right here? <laughs> uh, you are an alpha when you're a parent of children and then they become the alphas. That's true. Sometimes, sometimes the kid alphas treat you like, like shit. So, uh, but, stay alpha. uh, hi, James. Favorite Angela Davis book. I don't know Angela Davis. Isn't Angela Davis, um, wasn't she a socialist? She like uh, was in jail for a while for killing somebody. I don't know. I don't have a favorite a Angela Davis book. Uh, so I'm not sure. Uh, hey there. Uh, all right. I'm going to, um, I'm going to answer some questions. Text me at, uh, 203-590-8607 if you have questions, or you can ask questions there and Jay will track them, but I'm going to ask my text questions, answer my text questions first. Uh, so let's see. Um, uh, so this person is, uh, studying for the California state bar exam to be a lawyer. But her dream is to be a romance novelist like Danielle Steele and Jackie Collins. Should I give up being a, a lawyer and just focus on my writing? All the, oh, the exam is just a couple months away. What is the future of lawyers? Okay, a bunch of questions there. First is, what is, let's just talk macro. What's the future of lawyers? We, we use lawyers. Oh, yeah. No, I, I believe definitely there's a future. Um, but you, 
you know, she went through law school the three years, I'd say go ahead and do it. And yeah. that's the way she has it. It's a, she has her trade and she can keep it and then write. But don't give up now. I'm yeah. So take the law exam, pass it. So uh, my good friend Bill, Bill Batiste, been on my podcast a couple of times. He uh, went to law school and he hated the law and decided not to be a lawyer. He's a comedian, which is a very poor career choice for someone who went to law school. And he's also been a dating coach, another very poor career choice for someone who went to law school. But he combined his three skills of lawyer, dating coach, comedian to create a course on what he calls frame control, which is persuasion. And he's doing very well with that. Uh, I helped him set that up, actually. But did he take the bar exam even though he knew he didn't want to be a lawyer? Of course he did. And get that law degree, get past the bar exam, um, always have that in the back pocket because unfortunately to practice, to charge practicing law, you have to have a law, uh, you have to be a licensed lawyer and you only get that way in most U.S. states if you take the bar exam. There are a few states like I think Utah and I think even New York or New Jersey where if you apprentice for a law firm for like a year or two, you can take the bar exam without going to law school, uh, right. but you still have to take the bar exam. Also, with a law degree, you can be a broker uh, in real estate, and you don't really. Yeah. You don't have. You don't get a real estate broker's license. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think being a, a lawyer, you can be a broker because they cover all of that. And and if you have a law degree, you can also be who's the guy who pr approves everything. Like uh, I, oh, I, you mean like a, a signature? Like, yeah. Um, he says, I was here. This is my stamp. Yeah. It's a notary. Notary. You can be a notary public with a lottery. So, but I think you never know. And like you said, you've already, you've already paid for the law degree. Unfortunately, maybe you shouldn't have paid for the law degree. You're already in debt from that. But here's what I would do. It's very hard to just quit your job and career and just jump into something new. Because not only then do you have to learn the skills of being a romance novelist, but you have fear. You have every day you wake up and you'll think, am I making the right choice? Am I, am I, uh, you're going to, you're going to rent mental real estate to this fear. Did I make a right choice? What if I don't know what I'm doing? What if the book doesn't sell? So here's what I would do. I would get the law, uh, you know, license, uh, take the bar exam. Maybe you could even take on small cases, open up a little law firm in your, in your home, just take enough cases to pay the bills. Uh, by the way, I'll just tangent for a second. I think a very interesting business idea is to create a website where people could crowdsource law, law questions. So for instance, let's say I get a parking ticket in Pennsylvania and I can post, here's my parking ticket. Here's what happened. Here's the documents. I'm going to, is there any way I can contest this? And the crowd uh, answers for you based on their own experiences, knowledge. Maybe someone's a retired lawyer and you're willing to, and let's say I'm willing to pay $100 for the answer. So it's like a reverse auction. So maybe retired uh, lawyers answer. But anyway, I think this is a good idea for a business, uh, crowd legal, whatever you want to call it. And if you're a lawyer, you could set this up and you could approve all the law cases that are coming in. You need a lawyer to kind of approve which cases will be answered by the crowd. Anyway, that's, that's a side. That, there you go. And, uh, uh, but then absolutely spend an hour a day, just write. So Graham Greene is a, is a famous, uh, British novelist. He wrote a lot of, um, thrillers, mysteries type books. He did this for like 30 or 40 years. I think he wrote 50 books, 100 books, something like that. He would just write 500 words a day, sometimes a thousand words a day. He would generate one solid novel a year, and he did that for like 40 or 50 years. So uh, uh, what I would do is the law, the, the romance genre is a very, very specific formula. And I'm sure there are many, not only are there books about the exact formula for a lawyer, and I think if you go, if my friend Sean Coyne, who's, um, he works with Stephen Pressfield, who write, he writes a lot about writing. So Sean Coyne has a book or a course called The Story Grid. He outlines beat by beat the exact romance genre. That's Sean Coyne, um, C-O-Y-N-E is his last name, S 
S E A N, I think is his first name, or S H A W N, I forget. And uh, we're obviously not good friends. And uh, uh, but also, even Harlequin Romance, they have on their website you can download the formula beat by beat what you need in a romance novelist. And you, of course, you can read all the Danielle Steele novels. You can take notes. Okay, when when does the uh, you know the female meet the male hero? Uh, when does she start to hate him? When does she start to like him? What's the problem in the middle that keeps them apart after their first affair? Um, and then how do they get back together and live life uh, ever after, you know happily ever after? So you could study the genre and then just start writing 300 words a day, 500 words a day. The key is do not ever look back at what you wrote the day before unless it's just to catch up your memory. Don't even think about rewriting until you finish the first draft and just... 500 words a day. The average Harlequin romance, I believe, is about 40,000 words, and they're very specific. They tell you this on their website. So maybe start off with a Harlequin romance, or maybe start off self-publishing. I know many people who have self-published romance novels and have done very well with just self-publishing, hundreds of thousands of copies and uh, of their books sold. And how do they do that? Well, I'll tell you how E.L. James did it. So E.L. James, if you remember, she wrote a little book called Fifty Shades of Grey, which is, of course, a romance novel novel or a soft porn novel. But here's what she did. She didn't just write it from scratch. She participated in fan groups for Twilight, the, the movie series and the, and the book series Twilight. And she wrote fan fiction for Twilight, and she developed up to 1.5 million followers on fan fiction sites. There's a site, I think, even called fanfiction.net. I think she wrote for that. She had 1.4 million followers. And someone said to her, this is so good. Why don't you write it up as a book? So she switched all the names. She took out the vampire stuff. And she called. And she replaced the vampire with the billionaire. And she called it Fifty Shades of Grey. And guess what? She self-published. She. We think now, oh, she must have published with Simon & Schuster. No, they all rejected her book. She self-published. She sold right away about 250,000 copies because she had this fan base. And... Uh, then she pitched her book to Amazon. Amazon runs their own publishing companies. Amazon rejected it, even though she had sold a quarter of a million copies. And so I think it was Random House picked it up. And there was one period, I think this was in 2013 or 2014, she was selling one out of every three books sold in the world on the planet was Fifty Shades of Grey. Wow. And she started off self-published. She started off writing fan fiction on some random internet group. And then she just did the, the formula for a romance novel. And I've read the book. It's interesting to read. It is not a well-written book, but she has the formula down perfectly. I would love to write in such a formulaic way. It's, it's more difficult than you think. Study the formula, write every day, and most, not most importantly, but this is an important thing that writers have to do now, which they did not have to do 50 years ago. You have to participate in Facebook groups, on fan sites and so on about writing and about like join Roman, join a Danielle Steele fan Facebook group and start commenting and answering questions and writing on those groups every day. Go on Quora, answer questions about the romance genre every day. So spend an hour every day writing and spend an hour every day building up social media. And people say, oh, um, and, you know, to be fair, I get it. Like some people don't like social media. So one person wrote me and said, I don't want to be a social media whore. Is there any other way to break into writing? Unfortunately, how much money you make writing is directly correlated to your social media presence, at least in the beginning. So you have to do all the social media stuff. Find as many fan groups for your genre as you can. Participate them. Write three to 500 words a day and then figure out how you can put in the minimal hours per day as a lawyer, but you can maybe just take on, I don't know, what do they call probate cases? Or maybe take, I have one friend, she's doing okay. She's uh, just doing adoption cases. So parents hear about her through word of mouth and she's just doing adoption cases. She'll do on, at any given point, she's got two or three cases. They'll pay her decent money per hour and she's a lawyer, so she could do it. And that's how I would do it. So for I will just say for me, I didn't, I kept my, and you probably know this, I kept my full-time job for 18 months after I started doing my side hustle. It's always good 
to diversify what you're doing so no one thing stresses you. Even when I was a day trader, I would was also a writer, and then I started a hedge fund, and then I would write books, and then I would write for the Financial Times, or and then I would do speaking gigs. It's always spoke and wheel approach. You have the wheel and then lots of spokes. In this case, romance fiction is the wheel, and you have weird spokes like uh, uh, doing lawyer stuff, but you know you want the spokes ideally to be come out of the wheel. They don't always do it, but if doing a few hours as a lawyer helps pay for your the hour you spend learning the romance genre or the two hours you spend on social media, then it's worth it. So, anything? Do you ever read a romance novel? No, I don't, I don't like them. Personally, I, I just like books that I can, you know, learn something from. So you like nonfiction books? Yeah, yeah. Like you don't really like novels that much. No. I want to write. I want to write a thriller novel. That my next, <laughs> my next serious hardcore book. I really want it to be a thriller novel. And you know, I'll, I'll just tell you flat out. You should never talk about the plot before you write something. Like the fact that I'm about to talk a plot idea means I probably won't write it. But what do you think of this idea? So I've had on a lot of podcast guests that are very interesting people. I have, I've had on a diverse group. So I've had on a lot of thriller novelists also. And I've also had on ex-Navy SEALs. I've had on ex-CIA people. And I found out that there's quite a few of them have one thing in common. They've all been asked by the government in the mid-00s, to jo like in 2007, 2008, to join a top secret group made up of thriller novelists and science fiction novelists to brainstorm ideas for how terrorists can attack the United States. And if I ever ask them, well, tell me some of the ideas you came up with, they say, oh, I can't, it's top secret. They got top secret clearance to do this. But it's amazing how it's at least five people who have been on my podcast who have all told me they belonged to this group. But I've had it on like some of the best, uh, you know, thriller writers on the planet. Like I've had on Ken Follett, I've had on Brad Meltzer, I've had on Brad Thor, uh, uh, Alex Berenson, who's getting famous for his coronavirus tweets. And they, they, a lot of these guys, plus some other professions, have this in common. So I want to do a plot where there's this secret group of people who have to plan, who have to brainstorm possible terrorist attacks so the U.S. could learn how to respond, and they start going missing one at a time. And anyway, yeah. I won't give any more of the plot, but I think that's an interesting idea. So I'll go to another question. By the way, I definitely approve of the idea of writing romance novels. I think those are addictive. I love them, and and it's it's a great genre. People think just because something's a genre book that it's low quality. But if you compare like a bad legal thriller, and I won't mention any names, but there's a, there's a whole genre of legal thrillers. Compare those books with a John Grisham legal thriller, and you'll see John Grisham is a great writer. He's not a literary writer. He's not going to write like your favorite literary writer, but he is a great, he, he, there's no holes in the plot. They're page turners. You can read a 400-page John Grisham novel in a plane ride to California, and he's just brilliant. If you can write one-tenth as good as him, you're right better than almost any other legal thriller writer out there. But thank you for that question. That's a good question. So, I wrote an article yesterday about the ways, if you've seen the movie Eight Mile, I wrote an article about the 12 cognitive biases that Eminem uses to manipulate the audience uh, in a rap battle that he's in in the movie. He wants to manipulate the audience to like him more than his opponent, who's this guy called Papa Doc. And so uh, cognitive biases are shortcuts that the brain takes to make decisions. And usually they're fine. Usually your cognitive biases are correct. Um, I won't go into the whole thing on cognitive biases. Maybe we could do that in another episode. I've covered this on, on my podcast a lot. Uh, at least two people on my podcast have written books about cognitive biases. But if you know and are aware of cognitive biases, you can use them to potentially manipulate people in critical situations. So I write about an article describing cognitive biases, and I use this example from Eminem. One of the examples I use, I wonder if, if you've ever heard this story. 
So Benjamin Franklin, when he was a young member of the Pennsylvania State Legislature, he had an enemy. There was a politician, another member of the legislature, who hated him, hated Benjamin Franklin. So if Benjamin Franklin proposed a law, this guy would just shoot it down. So kind of like I know. the Democrats and Republicans right now. So things don't change, by the way. Everybody says, oh, I've never seen America so divisive. Trust me, the Civil War, people were more divisive. I mean, in 1858, I think it was, one senator tried to beat to death another senator right in the Senate. So we've been divisive yeah. before. But anyway, Benjamin Franklin had this enemy, and he wanted to turn this enemy into a friend. So he used a very interesting technique, and it's actually now called the Ben the Benjamin Franklin effect or the Benjamin Franklin bias is a cognitive bias. He he knew that his enemy had a who was very proud of his book collection. So he went up to his enemy and he said, you know, can I borrow XYZ book? And his enemy was surprised, like, oh, okay, yeah. And so his enemy brought in the book, lent it to Benjamin Franklin. A week later, I don't even know if Benjamin Franklin read it. But a week later, Benjamin Franklin returned the book and just said, thanks. That was it. That guy was Benjamin Franklin's friend for life. He never again went against any Benjamin Franklin bill at all. So what happened? What happened there? Why was what? It, it, it's it's a trust and it's a bonding. But what really happened was is that his your brain, the problem with the brain is your brain is actually very stupid. So the brain looks at your actions and then figures out what the actions mean. Actions happen before thoughts. Right. So the brain is looking at, at the, 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 at the brain of the enemy is saying, hmm, I am the sort of person who lends books to Ben Franklin. So that means I must like him, I must trust him, and he must mm -hmm. be my friend. So the cognitive bias is the brain takes over then, and now the enemy can't be the enemy anymore, because the brain says, no, 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 you can't be the enemy. You're the type of person who lends Benjamin Franklin books. And uh, so that's the Benjamin Franklin hmm. bias. And so, uh, 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 you know, so somebody just asked me uh, via my phone, via SMS, uh, someone just asked me, is that relevant? How do you use that cognitive bias now? Because you can't, I would not go up to someone and say, usually, hey, can I borrow this hardcover book? Because people read books on the Kindle, for instance, or it's easy for you to just get the book. Back then, it wasn't so easy to build up a book collection, but now you can just go to the bookstore and buy a book for 10 bucks or whatever. You can go to Kindle and get the book for cheaper. So what would be a relevant way? Like, let's say you had an enemy right now. What could you maybe borrow from them do you have to borrow or can you do something else? You have to get them to do a favor for you. You have to get them to do something nice to you because then the, the cognitive bias is the brain then convinces you that you, since you were nice to this person some way, you now like them and then you're, uh, uh, then you treat them nicely. It reminds me of that, um, the saying that uh, your, your actions are so loud that it's hard for me to hear what you're saying. Yeah. Right? Because it's Are you like, telling that to me? No, no, I just like that saying because people, you can tell what they are really thinking by their actions because it's easy just to say words, but if you actually right. watch what they do, you won't understand where they are. Right. Uh, well, so, that, so yes, so, 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 so that's the saying, you know, watch what I do, not what I say. Exactly. And so that yeah. tells you who the real person is. And this is one step further. So you're trying to which make is, them do what you want right. so it's just it's turning there right and, and usually people think oh i want to get someone to like me i'll lend them a book hey you might like this book please like me here's the book but usually then people are like "Ugh, this guy's pandering to me right. i hate him even more right so it's right, right. so it's the reverse of what you would normally think it's counterintuitive that if you ask someone to do a favor for you it actually makes their brain like it's hard to say no to the favor uh -huh. and so they do the action and then the brain is looking at the action to determine huh. how they're going to treat the person in the future so i do that with the kids so what do you do i have them do things like i say i need you to go to the grocery store and get us something or do me a favor go do this and they do it yeah so that, i mean i guess and they don't really kind of want to but they do and so and so then the idea would be is that that turns them into more likely to do favors for you in the future. Right, and for other people. 
Okay, so yeah. so 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 basically, yeah. that that's that's almost slightly different because. But let's say your kid hates you, but you ask them to do a favor and they do the favor for you. Right. So your kid, if your kid hates you and you do a favor for them, they're probably going to hate you more. That's right. They're probably going to think, oh my gosh. He's so easy. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I, I, it's so right. easy to manipulate my parents. Yeah. Guess what I got my right. mom to get yeah. me the other day. Right. But if you ask them to do a favor for you, mm-hmm. then they're more inclined to be nicer to you right. later. Because like, they think to themselves, their brain thinks, oh, I'm the type of person right. who's a good daughter right. so or a good son. Right. But like, let's say it's in a sales context. Like you're going to go... Um, meet someone for a sales meet, you're going to try to sell them something, or or let's say you just have an enemy in the Pennsylvania State Legislature, what's a technique you can do? I don't know. I mean, if you're going to meet with somebody, maybe say, oh, can I borrow your pen? Or can I, you know, yeah. you know ask to borrow something while you're there with them? Or yeah. you know, may I use your phone? Or, or you could ask them out for lunch, and you could say, you could let them pay for it. Or you could say, hey, how about... Well, I don't know. That's a little trickier to do that. Like, then it seems... Uh, Maybe, I don't know, if you don't know them very well, I mean, just ask to use something. That, oh, do you mind if I use your pen? Or, uh, I don't know, I guess you start small. <laughs> yeah, well, so Benjamin Franklin started with a book, which is medium small. Because, again, books were rare then. Mm-hmm. So it's, it can't be so small that it's nothing. Because your brain has to think, mm-hmm. this is big enough that I must like the person. So a pen is not quite big enough that they think that they'll like the person. Or if you like maybe honestly what they're wearing oh i love that where did you get that i mean so they're actually giving you right they're giving you advice right so okay so right so here's how i would do it in a modern context Mm -hmm. is i would ask for advice from them so let's say you're you're you have an enemy um i would write them but it's but it's an enemy that you communicate with like ben franklin was able to communicate with this Mm -hmm. guy i would figure out something to ask them for advice about like hey if you were me how would you handle this? Like, let's say it's a sales meeting, mm-hmm. or let's say you're asking your boss for a raise. Uh, I would say to my boss, and so let's say the boss is going to say um, something like, well, I don't know, budgets have been cut, how much of a raise do you think you need? I don't, I don't know. I would say to the boss, okay, look, I've been so busy working you're right. I don't. I don't really think about these things. You're the expert at this, and you've been through this, and you know you're more experienced. If you were me, what should I ask for? If I, how should I approach this? How should I get a raise? Mm-hmm. And asking them for advice gives them status, and then when they give your advice, it's the same effect. Their brain thinks to them, "Oh, I'm the type of person who gives James advice about how he can ask for a raise." He's giving, he's trusting me. He's giving me status. I don't want to ruin that status. And I am this type of person who people come to for advice. So I don't want to give bad advice. And then I think that's a, a good, easy way to do the Benjamin Franklin technique. Because you're right. It's harder. When's the last time you borrowed an object from somebody? Right. I mean, like I never go to my neighbor like, oh, can I borrow some sugar? Like yeah. I never really, everything is like so accessible. Like Amazon, you know, you could just, you hit a button and Amazon, you know, delivers it like 30 seconds later. And, you know, now there's, um, this is just related to this. I'm going to, I'm going to tangent for a second into business models. There's something called e-commerce, but there's also something you're going to start to hear more and more of called e-commerce, automated commerce. So this is when, you know, you think of Amazon Prime, like, oh, I want this book. Amazon Prime delivers it to you the next day. And it's sort of a joke uh, that we've heard, but like pretty soon, you know, Americans want things so fast, pretty soon Amazon's going to deliver yesterday. So there's a comedian, Ronnie Chang, who has a whole joke around this. But it's actually true. With automated commerce, you know, maybe you, you know, your refrigerator sees, oh, I'm getting low on milk, and it orders automatically from Amazon or the local grocery store, and they deliver before you even realize you need it. Or... Let's say, you know, you have something in your closet. Uh, oh, you're running low on... Oh, no, your, your Fitbit sees that you've just uh, walked 50,000 steps in the same pair of socks. So your Fitbit orders socks for you. So it delivers, because your socks are getting worn out, and Fitbit knows it. So it orders uh, uh, your socks before you even realize you need it. So, so automated commerce, you know, maybe here's our printer. 
maybe automated commerce realizes, oh, we're getting low on, isn't it the most annoying thing when the ink, they, yeah. you only realize you're low on the ink. You never think about, oh, am I low on ink? You always realize you're low on ink when it just shows up shitty. Teenagers. Right, because they're using it, <laughs> they don't care. And so, so if the printer orders, it has some AI and it orders ink when you're running yeah. low. So, uh, so e-commerce is going to be a huge, huge industry and it's going to be connected to the internet of things like your, your lights will know when the light bulbs are burning out. I think they already have that, don't they? So maybe. I don't even know. Yeah, I think so. Your, your Fitbit will know things about you. Maybe your Fitbit will know if your back is not straight. And so it'll say, hey, you should go to the doctor and check for scoliosis. Or maybe it'll order you a back maybe brace. A massage. Or maybe, yeah, maybe it'll order you a massage and set up the appointment. Or maybe it'll um, just remind you, hey, stand up yeah. straight. By the way, Fitbit doesn't currently do this. Product idea, make a Fitbit that does this. That Because back posture. you when you do it. Like, well, back posture, we're, we're so used to just leaning over our computers and typing all day long that all of our back postures are pretty right. bad. Unless you're like some like fifth degree <laughs> yoga black belt or whatever, like your back posture is probably not what it could be. And that leads to pain right. and lack of sleep and stress and so on. So if someone makes a Fitbit or some, th it some device, you you yeah, or <laughs> shocks you or does something. Not pleasant. Yeah. It's like, Oh, I guess. Or, you know, what's an interesting thing. Here's an idea. Um, you know how you wake up in the middle of the night, sometimes and your thoughts are racing. So sometimes I'd wake up at three in the morning and it's hard to go back to sleep because my thoughts are racing. Well, when your thoughts are racing, it's because blood is flowing to your frontal cortex mm. and your forehead starts to heat up. So what if you wear some kind of very thin band, mm -hmm. which notices, takes the temperature of your forehead, notices in the middle of the night if it's getting a little too hot, which means maybe you're about to wake up because your thoughts are racing too much and idea. gets cooler so that your, your frontal cortex cools wow. down and it avoids your thoughts from racing. Boom. That's a great idea. An Internet of Things product, although it's not quite an e-commerce product. I do think e-commerce is going to be like a multi-trillion dollar mm -hmm. industry because almost everything, like a, like a phone, you know, if I, if I turn off and on the phone so many times, eventually the phone mm -hmm. dies. And so you'll know, you get maybe it automatically uh, you know, gets a new phone for you. But I kind of think owning is going to be a thing in the past in like 10 years. Mm -hmm. So everything we own will just be, you know, it'll be yeah. like a sh access economy. So, oh, I need a car. Oh, there's a car parked right outside, like a, like a zip yeah. car sort of thing that you could drive. Oh, you need an apartment for a month? No problem. There's an apartment available on this street. Kind of like Airbnb, but just a lot more seamless and automated. Yeah. So yeah, I think, yeah, they're going that way. So what, what's another e-commerce idea mm -hmm. that could be done? Like, um, let's say, uh, oh, I was thinking of plane tickets, but I don't know. It's hard because I don't really buy many objects. I just buy books, really. Yeah, no, I'm the one that does for everything. So, okay, so like what's a, a I'm just object? I'm trying to think uh, what would be, you know, I mean, you could just use you know, shampoo, things that, you know, run out oh yeah so everything in the bathroom right. runs out yeah. so so Something. there could be there could be things that monitor that be, in order right it has to be monitored through alexa i think they're doing that with with refrigerators they're doing that with uh i don't know water you know maybe if like your chair knows your weight so maybe if suddenly you gain too much weight it, it automatically orders you an exercise plan or a gym membership or something That's like that. Sad. The chair's like, "Hey, you gotta lose some weight." <laughs> but so so. But anyway, this is all. But that's why it's so it's so hard to ask people for a favor because all objects like the 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 interaction yeah. in society between people and the objects they own right. are different. Like you don't really. I can't think of the last time I borrowed something from anyone except for Jay. So. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, but yeah, asking for something more virtual, like advice or an introduction. Mm -hmm. So, oh, an introduction would be good. You could say to a person, hey, you know so-and-so, any chance you can make an intro for me? I want to put them on my podcast. I want to do this favor for them. And so if they make an intro, then suddenly your brain thinks, oh, I'm the type of person who makes an intro for this person. And or, or ask him anything, like you said, advice, like, oh, what? 
do you have any good TV shows that you like right now? Or So anytime to yeah. share, you know. You got to be, and I agree, you got to be a little careful you're not pandering. So it's like with the TV. You have to be sincere about it. Yeah. Like, like, like you really do want to know. Because like the TV show Give is not such a great favor. It's got to be well, like a favor. I would like to know. Right. Because we really want new shows. Yeah, we have no shows. <laughs> we just, the best sitcom. The best sitcom of the year we just finished, which is Dave on Hulu or FXX, and it stars um, the rapper Lil Dicky. It stars the comedian uh, Andrew Santino. It's directed by Greg Matola, who, who directed Super Bad, one of my all time favorite movies. We need another sitcom. So, but I would say to do the Benjamin Franklin effect now, ask for a favor or, or, Ask for advice is the more concrete way to do it. So if you're in a sales meeting um, and if someone says no, and I've seen this done, by the way, and it works. If someone says, no, we can't do this, ask them, well, how could I have presented this differently so you would have said yes, just so I know? Mm -hmm. um, or you could say, well, I noticed when I was coming up here, you don't have a lot of software people, but maybe there's some software things you need and I... and and." Uh, uh, maybe you could tell me how I could improve my software services so I could win your software business or some advice or some favor like that, I think is the modern way to do yeah. the Benjamin Franklin effect. So cool. now another question. Um, here's a good question. I think my, I just read the first sentence. So I don't even know yet. Mm -hmm. The first sentence is I have a question about how I respond to posts on Facebook. Well, I'm an expert at responding to posts on Facebook. Uh, I teach, and during the school year, I'm rarely looking at Facebook. But during the summer break, I hear you, I often look at it. With the state our country and world are in, I feel very charged and passionate about my views. And, I always see, and when I see something that is pro-Trump, racist, or something that needs fact-checked, I go crazy. Uh, uh, she says... Um, she says, I think we do have systemic racism. We've always had police brutality. I am a white woman who lives in a very conservative county in central Illinois. I live in a rural area and just feel either angry or despondent every day. Hmm. It's not just Facebook. It's conversations with family and friends as well. So my question then does include responding to people, whether on social media or in person. Hmm. That is a really great question because there's a couple of things you should know. Um, first off, you respond on Twitter, like you'll, you'll respond to bots on Twitter and are you like robots? So I don't know if you have any advice on this. I mean, you're not going to change anybody's mind. We know that, right? Key thing. Point number one, you are not going to change anyone's mind. So you have to think what your goal is. Yep. Is your goal to make, you have to have, first off, you have to, you have to remember a couple things. Let's just make the laws of engagement right now, the rules of engagement in a Twitter war or even in a conversation with your family. Rule number one, you are not going to change their mind. There, I have the amount of times in my 52 years of living that I've seen someone change their mind because of something I've said is basically zero, particularly if they're, in fact, there's a cognitive bias. There's a cognitive bias called the backlash bias, uh, which is that if you, if someone's very polarized, and you argue with them, they will actually become more polarized. Mm -hmm. They will not, they will not say, huh, boy, <laughs> I've talked to a thousand people about this, but James is right. <laughs> and I've changed my mind forever. They're never going to, has that ever happened to you? Raise your hand or put a heart if you, if that's ever happened to you. You are never going to cha change anyone's mind. So, so, but what happens is you'll do the reverse and you don't want to do this. If you really care about systemic racism and police brutality and, you know, a political candidate or whatever, this is very important to remember. If they're polarized, and it sounds like you're dealing with a lot of polarized people, and, and they only have to be a little bit polarized, just a little bit left of right, you know, right of center or left of center, and that's polarized enough. Mm -hmm. They will not change their mind. Instead, the backlash effect happens, which is a cognitive bias, where they will take an even stronger stance against you. Like, let's say someone likes Trump, and you say, you give them 55 reasons why mm -hmm. they should not like Trump. Mm -hmm. They might not really be that much for Trump, but now you just, they'll do the, the backlash effect will kick in, and they'll start arguing against you, and they'll even think to themselves, I'm not even that for Trump, but why am I arguing so strongly pro-Trump? 
Or why am I so strong, arguing so strongly for the police? I'm, I, I'm sure there's police brutality. I agree with this person. Why am I arguing again with her? The backlash, it's because the backlash cognitive bias is really strong. And it happens in relationships and marriages. Have you ever been in a relationship where one person is kind of messy, but not really, and the other person's kind of clean, but not really, but then suddenly in the relationship, they go, boom, and this person becomes super clean. You've got, why did you leave your sock here? And this person becomes super messy and can't clean anything, just leaves their dishes around and whatever. They become messier than they ever were. It's called, in a relationship, it's called splitting the difference. A couple go, splits the difference and one person takes over the clean side of the relationship and the other person takes over the messy side of the relationship. That's the backlash effect in practice in relationships. So here's what I would do. So that's rule number one. You won't change their mind. Rule number two is you'll actually trigger the backlash effect so you'll do the opposite of what you want to do. Rule number three is figure out what your goals are. Or no, rule number three is nobody nobody gives a shit about you. <laughs> and all and this is true. It's true. They, they and this is not a bad thing. Everybody cares first and foremost about their own self-worth. And if you're telling them that they're wrong, their self-worth, if they agree with, this is why the backlash effect happens. If they agree with you, their self-worth goes down a little bit. So yeah, so they're not gonna, if you don't appease their self-worth, they're not gonna, they're gonna just stop listening to you. So you have to decide then what your goals are. There are two goals that are worthwhile. There's a goal of improving yourself and there's the goal of trying to improve society. By the way, good luck trying to improve society from your house in rural Illinois. Maybe you can do it, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you my experience in the past few months. So I have felt very strongly about some aspects of the economy during this lockdown, and I have felt very strongly about systemic racism and when these protests started. So I called and reached out to friends of mine who are very high up in government on both Democrat and Republican side. And I've also reached out to African-American leaders who are very prominent and well-known. And I said, look, you know, we're on the same side. Here's my ideas for reform. Here's how I think you can get your message across even better than you're already doing. And you're doing it very well, but here's how I think you can get your message across. Even with me, with these are my friends who are high up. They have the ability to make decisions in government in the African-American community, they have huge platforms, and they would agree with me, but still, I was not able to have any influence at all. So give up trying to improve the world. You will not do it. Unless you're gonna like clean the park near where you live, you're not gonna improve the world. But what does selflessly improve the world is improving yourself. Yeah. And we already know you're renting out too much mental real estate to anonymous people on Twitter, to anonymous people or people who are barely your friend on Facebook. You would never have, if Facebook didn't exist, you would never have spoken to this friend of yours from third grade, uh, who was your, who was the bully in third grade. You would never would have spoken to that person again. And now you're arguing with them all day on Facebook. But it's also about respecting the other person's opinion. I mean, you can't, you know, always think, you may be right and they're right. I mean, so it's okay. I have a lot of friends that, that, that have a different you know, yeah. mindset than I do, but I respect their mindset. I mean, I, I'm not here to change their mind or to, you know, and so we don't really talk about those sort of things. Um, right. so I think it really is about respect. And so what if they have those opinions? That's okay because we live in the United States. You can have your opinion. You don't have to be so upset or, or, or feel like you have to change well, people. But, that, but that's the and challenge. That's the aggravating part to me is when people try to do that. It's like, I don't try to do that to other people. I'm only doing it to the bots because I, all I do is expose them. For that's you, all I want to do. For you, it's sport. It's like one yeah. time I asked Nassim Taleb, why do you always argue with people on Twitter? And, and you're really angry at people. And he's like, oh, it's just sport for me. I don't believe that anymore because I think he's since blocked me. But, uh, um, but yeah, I think the challenge is how can you improve yourself? Right. 
great. Well, Just work on yourself. You, you, you can improve yourself by noticing, oh, someone on Facebook said something that made me angry. So I'm going to be rise above this and say, I'm going to provide words of hope instead. Not And make sure, double, triple check yourself that you're not being political or you're not trying to persuade or just try to be neutral and focus on how can I make this environment, you know, first make yourself better, then you have an obligation yes. to your your spouse, your children, your friends, you your community. With, yeah. yeah, it's concentric circles outwards. Mm -hmm. How can I, by improving myself, how can I make all these other people better? So maybe, maybe I learned something about how to deal with arguing so I could help my children deal with arguing better. Or maybe, you know, I have a I have business partners who disagree with me on very important political issues, and you learn to listen and not judge and not argue because it, it, nobody wakes up and says, "Boy, I can't wait for police to kill more black people." Nobody says that. So so there's no real argument there, but maybe there's arguments and techniques like if does looting, does rioting help? Does uh, does an economic lockdown help the pandemic? So there's. There's techniques, and you might disagree with them, but I know for a fact you're not going to be able to influence anyone at all. So the best thing you can do is just solutions. improve yourself. And solutions too, right? But but no, I pitch solutions. I pitch very hardcore solutions, which they would agree with, but it influences nobody. Right. So the best thing I can do is what I wrote about in Choose Yourself, physical health. Did I yeah. eat well today, exercise well today, and sleep eight hours? Emotional health. Am I around toxic people or am I around people who love me and who I love? Creative health. Did you write your 10 ideas a day down? Because maybe you could write a, a blog or a book or do a podcast or you'll have other creative ideas how you can contribute to the community personally to help things. So, But you won't be able to be creative if you're not exercising the creativity muscle. Creative, creative muscles atrophy. So it's, it's you got to write down 10 ideas a day to exercise. And then Probably the most important of all, given the question, spiritual health. And that doesn't mean praying or meditating or any of these things. It simply means, it simply means learning to not try to control the things you can't control. So, uh, uh, so, so judo is, uh, sometimes translated as, it's a more, it's this martial art from Japan or whatever, and it's translated as the gentle way. And the reason it's the gentle way is if someone's like lunging at you, they're slightly off balance. The moment they hit, throw the punch, someone's a little off balance and they're using energy and they're a little off balance. And the whole idea of judo is to make them use their energy against themselves. So you stand out of the way and you hold their arm and now they're throwing that energy at an empty space and they fall and then you put your leg out and they trip. So the motto of the main guy who started uh, judo, I'm trying to remember his name, J Jingoro Kano, the, his main quote is, um, maximum efficiency, minimum energy. Mm -hmm. So if you're arguing on Facebook, you're having minimum efficiency, maximum energy. Mm -hmm. So always keep in mind, if you're trying to control something you can't, you're gonna, ha you're gonna be doing the opposite of what you should be doing. Like a pendulum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so you want to be you want to be using minimum energy to have maximum efficiency. You do not want to be using maximum energy to have zero efficiency. So, again, the most selfless thing you can do if you find yourself repeatedly in that situation is to improve yourself, improve the people around you, practice your creativity, and not try to control things you can. I'm sorry to say this because you cannot change anyone. Like, I have a very good friend, a very dear friend, who's pro-life, I'm pro-choice, we've been best friends for 21 years, we talk almost every day, and he puts his, he puts his life where his words are. He, uh, he adopts kids, he has foster kids, he helps people who are in difficult situations, I really admire him a lot. We talk about pro-choice and pro-life, but we don't argue because He's religious. He's a, a religious Catholic. He's not going to change his mind, and I'm not going to change my mind. And we both know that about each other. And we, because of our friendship, we've had lots of businesses together and made a lot of money together. If we had just argued that first day about pro-choice, we neither of us would have made any of the money we, we've made. So let's see. Uh, I think there's time to ask another question, to answer another question. Um. 
What business ideas do you have for a 51-year-old farmer living in rural Iowa wanting to get off the schneid? I don't know what a schneid is, but I can um, answer that. So we've talked about a lot of business ideas here uh, on this podcast. So, you know, I could repeat some of them, um, but you can, you know, listen to old episodes or watch some of the old episodes on Instagram, but I'll come up with some new ones uh, right now. If you're a 51-year-old farmer living in Iowa, then it's a good idea to see what things are trending higher on Google. So you know what's been trending during this period is, um, so have you ever seen these subscription boxes? So maybe, um, you know, like you could imagine a men's grooming kit, like a razor blades, uh, you know, what's that called? Uh, shaving cream. Yeah. Aftershave, cologne, whatever. So you can, you can go to like, there are different men's sites where you can subscribe every month. Send me a new crate. It's a new box. It's a subscription box. I'll pay $12 a month or $50 a month. Send me a new box with everything I need. But here's what's trending are sex crates. So you put together every month a new batch of sex related, uh, tools to, you know, help a couple improve, you know, keep things exciting, improve their orgasms, whatever. Like, oh, this box is going to be all about S&M. This next box is going to be all about anal. Sorry to be so bad. This next box is going to be, um, I don't know, all about ways to play with, you know, toys to play with each other. So uh, I'm, I'm suggesting this as a business to a 51-year-old farmer, but you could set up a, 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 a a crate business, like a sex crate business. Here's another thing that's been trending. Airlines no longer serve alcohol. So cocktail kits, a monthly cocktail, airline cocktail kit, like where you have miniature bottles of different cocktails, that's actually been trending higher. So that's another type of subscription business. I, I, I have a, a, an idea. Tell like me. He's a, a farmer. I would look into possibly, um, I don't know what the laws are for marijuana or, or cannabis farming, but actually, um, cannabis and, um, what's the other plant? The hemp hemp is, is really something that you should, he should look into Yeah, farming so because it takes less water than cotton. Um, it's healthier for the environment. It doesn't uh, absorb all the minerals like cotton takes all the minerals out of the land. Um, I would switch it to a hemp farm or something. Yeah, so, so, like or, or a cannabis farm. Or it, cannabis? Yeah, because I think hemp does, you can't get as much THC out of hemp. But, well, I mean, but they're still going to use that for, or, or some of the, the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, the, the, when they take the can, the, the oil out and what's left is, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, the hemp oil. Yeah, or no, just the plant itself. They are discarding that, and that's something that can be sold and, and uh, used for horse feed. It could be used for uh, uh, cows because if they eat that, it's very healthy for them. Yes. Right? So, so that's a farmer, he could do something like right. that. And um, or here's an, another thing too, which is that. So and here's another thing that's trending right now. Kids this summer are not going to summer camp. So the typical way that kids swim and have fun in the summer. They go swimming and they go to the pool. Well, public pools aren't going to be open in many states. So guess what's trending on Google? Inflatable pools. That, that are Inflatable pools because they're cheaper than, you know, built-in pools. And you could buy an inflatable pool, have it for the summer, have, uh, you know, have the kids use it. So here's what I would do. Go on Alibaba and search for inflatable pools. I did this. And an inflatable pool costs you about 30 or $40 on Alibaba made by a Chinese factory. You might have a minimum order of like a hundred inflatable pools. The same inflatable pool with the same dimensions will go for two or $300 on Amazon. And so you have the space, you have a farm, you can store a hundred or a thousand or whatever it is, inflatable pools, start off small and then Set up a store on Shopify, set up a store on Etsy, set up a store on any place where you can set up stores, set up a Pinterest page, write, you know, about pools or whatever. And, um, 
Try to buy inflatable pools on Alibaba and sell them on Amazon. You can make $100 a pool maybe, uh, even including all the shipping costs. So these are some basic ideas. Uh, I've given lots of ideas, like you could be a virtual assistant, you could write books, you could do a newsletter. I do think the absolute best business model out there right now is subscription newsletters or even advertising-based newsletters. Oh, but here's the other thing. If you're 51 and you have a farm, you might have a few thousand dollars extra cash that you use for investing. Go to flippa.com, F-L-I-P-P-A.com, and uh, there's all these e-commerce websites for sale, and they're usually for sale for less than two times what you make per year. And you can even, um, there's. The, I was talking to one guy the other day, he just bought his first, after hearing me talk about it on Instagram Live, he bought his first e-commerce website. He put no money down because he worked out a deal with the owner that'll pay them, he'll pay the owner, the old owner, out of profits over the next two or three years. And he bought some website for free and it looks great. So look at flippa.com and you can see, you know, the best way to ensure you won't fail is to buy an already existing successful business.